Hello, this is John Renaud, and you're listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival via the CEF.world. Check us out, Uncommon Genius for the Common Types. Hi, this is Cody Melville, and you're listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival with your host, John Renaud. Wow, that is fantastic, brother. I thank you for that introduction. <laughs> You're quite welcome. It has been a while since uh, we've spoken to each other, um, and it's been a while since I've seen you. I think I bumped into you at a Christmas back Detroit way a couple of years yeah, back. that's right, yeah. You were kind enough, well, you happened to be in town, and then you were kind enough to surprise and kind of come on up to this bar that I was hanging out with uh, my brother, and uh, that was fun to see you. Yeah, it was a great time, Absolutely. Yeah, and it was weird, too, because we ended up talking a little about music. Oh, well, a lot of things, obviously, because we were catching up then at that point. Yeah. We're both, we're both Troy boys. You grew up, uh, where did you grow up in Troy? North Side it was, right? Uh, no, I don't know how, how I would classify it. Uh, uh, Dequinder, almost all the way to Sterling Heights. Oh, okay. Yeah. You were an East Sider. East Sider, that's right. right. <laughs> no way so long, I forgot all the proper terminology for the, <laughs> the love were you were, were you over there uh, like your whole tenure in Troy, Michigan? No, no. Uh, New York City from Brooklyn. And ah. My father got a job uh, in Detroit and we were first in Royal Oak for about two years. And then because uh, the last house that we had in New York, we were in Brooklyn, but then we moved out to Long Island, was into like Levittown area. And right. there were Levitt houses in Troy. So my parents were like, well, we have to buy one of those. So off we went to Troy. Man, it was culture shock for me because they were like, and, and it ended up being a beautiful place to be a kid. Uh, but there were cornfields, and it's kind of where I'm living now. It was really, really, really the country at that time. I mean, it was nothing, and uh, it was pretty great. Yeah, it, it was an interesting place to, to go through at, at our age because, you know, my family, I was, I, uh, was in the same house my whole time as a kid, and it was pretty rural like the neighborhood I was in was one of the only neighborhoods and it was woods and cornfield. And then by the time we graduated from high school, um, it was pretty much one of the most affluent, you know, suburban areas with all these McMansions and crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. And in a strange way, I always felt like it gave me a really good balance of seeing, you know, wealth and not wealth and, you know, a rural, like we had snowmobiles and the whole thing when I was a kid, right. we could ride sure. everywhere. Yeah. 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 Me too. That was, that's what I mean. It was so different from what I was accustomed to, but it was fantastic as a kid. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and, and did we figure out if we played on the same football team at some point? Well, we did actually. Um, your father was the coach, which is how I really remember that. Yeah. We played little league football together. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was it's so distant at a point for me, you know, and and uh, and I remember when we when we bumped into each other, that's what we were talking about. And yeah, my old man, he was he was uh, he was that kind of guy. He was out there all the time. He he coached football and baseball and the whole thing. And, yeah, and it certainly yeah. And it, and in Troy at the time, I don't know if you felt this way. It was kind of cool to have. Um, like it was, it was a really good place for kids, and the parents really made sure they played sports and they were active in in different things. Was that the way you felt about it as well? Well, there was nothing else to do. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I mean, every day from you know as soon as I woke up, uh, I was outside with some 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 sports equipment, some ball in my hand. I was just obsessed with 
with baseball and football. Yeah. You know, until I hit the age of 13 and I replaced sports gear with a guitar and that changed everything. I yeah. all I knew was play sports. And it was, you know, there's a load of opportunity there to do that. It's been, it was great. You did really well too when you um, switched over to from sports to music. You ended up in Detroit. You were one of the few people who I knew in the music scene that actually garnered um, some pretty healthy radio play. Yeah, that was that was, uh, it was certainly uh, I was fortunate. That was a fun thing. I ended up uh, uh, signing with this uh, Detroit label called Tight Records. Yeah, and. Um, and there was a guy, Cal Sands, who was the guy who owned the label and produced all the records and on the studio. He was, I actually met him through, I think, a mutual friend of ours, Fred Gerard. Oh, Fred, yeah. Fred, Fred yeah. and I were buddies. And he said, you got to check out this studio. We went over there and I met the guy. And, and it, was a, it was a kind of environment where uh, it was just a bunch of young musicians, a bunch of kids every night in the studio um, making music. Nobody, it was no studio time. Cal owned everything. And, he, you know, he didn't charge anyone studio time. Right. Uh, the thing that I got all the airplay on was Cal's project uh, called Pleasure Circuit. And he had this track that he, you know, was producing, which was real cool sounding. And he said, you want to go out and write a, a lyric and a melody? So I just you know, went into the vocal booth and laid it down in like two takes. And, yeah. You know, it, it just had, it had that, uh, that moment. I want to want to say that magic that would sound arrogant, but it did. It made for a pretty cool record that radio was receptive to. It was the, what was the name of the, the, the song? Walk, it had the word uh, walk in. Take a little walk. Yeah, that, it was a really, I remember hearing it on the radio quite a bit. And it did have this cool, like, um, blending of rock with, with what was kind of emerging on the radio at the time, that whole secondary English movement of music. But you weren't that popish at the same time. But it had this cool rock you know, groove type thing going for it. And I really always appreciated it when I heard it. And it actually was one of the few things that gave me hope in this city because I'm like, well, I know that dude. And if that dude can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> I remember you told me that, which is so funny. And it is yeah. so true. It is so true. I mean, that, I think that was kind of, uh, at least for a long time, uh, the end of an era where you could, uh, you know, in a town like Detroit and have a little label and, and, and put a record out, put, put this vinyl disc out and have it on the radio. It's like the shit you see in the movies, like those yeah. happen. And then forever it didn't happen. And I think maybe it happens now in, in hip hop and, and pop, uh, you know, really heavy duty pop now. Um, although it's probably all with big label money behind it. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as rock and roll, that was really the, the last gasp of that happening. Yeah, I think so too. It was, uh, I don't know if you ever ran across my buddy, uh, Pat Shrine, who was a drummer in a band that had multiple names and they did like a lot of rock gigs at uh, the old wagon wheel, I think was one of their, Oh yeah, places they played over there. Sure. Yeah. And he, he, I remember going and seeing him like uh, pretty early out of high school and they were making, they had a five piece band and they were getting paid like 3,200 a week to play wow. five nights a week. Yeah. Because wow. they, they would do a solid three hour set and they would do really brilliant covers of rock music ranging from Elvis Costello to the who. And um, what was the band name? Maybe I, I uh, at that time, I think they were going with uh trifecta. Hmm. 
That doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, I don't think they, they're the name. They went through a lot of names like Model Citizens, Trifecta. I don't think they ever were happy with the names that they went with, but they were really (laughs) solid like bar band. And, uh, and I remember like I bumped into him like three years after, you know, I'd still go and see him from time to time. I bumped into him like three years later and he wasn't in the band and he was doing karaoke. And I'm like, what the fuck's up with that, man? And he he said, look, John, you know, that's what he told me how much they were making. And he said, two years after that, they were trying to pay him $350 a week to play there because, because yeah. they were, you know, and it was kind of the end of the Detroit Rock City era in many ways, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that stitches yeah, yeah. in the, the same time that you're talking about with, with you know, being able to have a smaller record company and getting some notoriety. So it's kind of a strange, strange thing that happened, I think, to the city. We come from Detroit Rock City. Yeah. And, uh, but it was well, a cool time. Town. Still a great music town. I mean, I was, uh, uh, I was really happy to see and I'm sure there's been a lot of resurgence. I just haven't been there. I've been away for a lifetime, you know. Yeah, I hear that. But uh, yeah, you as well, right? Yeah. But the, the, uh, the whole garage thing with, you know, with the White Stripes and Von Bondies and all of that was really pretty exciting, you know, 10, 12 years ago. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's true. It's, there were a lot of houses with a lot of garages. That's one of the things, man. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. And a big population just with a bunch of dudes and guitars. And it's like, hey, man, it's time to strap on and let's go. Yeah. Well, that was sport, you know. I mean. Uh, it was. You know, when when we were in, I don't know how it is now, but I mean, you just, you, uh, there was a lot of people that played the guitar and, you, you, you know, and putting bands together and things happening. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, you know, I sound like an old man, but I don't know if kids give a shit about, you know, having a Les Paul anymore. I don't I I think it's different um, for a ton of reasons valid or invalid but I think you know if you we had to group together you had to find people which was difficult to do that you know hey I need a bass player sometimes it's easy sometimes it's not you had to show up at someone's garage you had to work on your set yeah you had to really it was a lot of work in the sense of like organizing people collectively today's world man you know you know, as well as I do, I, you know, how did we do the songs we worked on together? Yeah. Yeah. Right. New technology. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of what you're talking about. I think it makes Mm -hmm. it a lot different. Yeah. But you know, there's just, uh, there's the, uh, um, people are making records as producers who really, you know, didn't dedicate more than an hour to learning their instrument because you don't have to. Yeah. Or auto tune or. Yeah. 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 And that's, and it's, in, it's, it's a true art form. It's the real deal. It is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just not what uh, it's, it's not from the Beatle Rolling Stones model. You know, no. it's not, <laughs> it's not from the collective, you, you know, you have to create your own vibe as a group per se. I do think you end up with a lot more like uh, maestros the way that it is because you can have a person um, who can just perfect something beyond belief because of the, how easy it is to record and re-record and, and mix in. Yeah. So in some ways, technically, I think musicianship has, you know, evolved and advanced, but that whole idea of, you know, I'm in a band is a little bit different, I think at this point. Yeah, true. True. This is, there's a, there's a guy, I, and I, so my friend of mine sent me this link to check out his show. It's on, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm so naive about this stuff, but he essentially does um, a daily thing from his studio, from his house yeah, where he, uh, he logs on and he's in his studio and then his, his, uh, his, uh, I don't know, he's not using pro tools, but whatever he's using is up on the screen. And he, he's, um, uh, unbelievable with his skills. I mean, he's, he's also, yeah. great. he's a, he's the kid from Lincoln park and I yeah. forgot his name. Uh, and the, you know, it's an enormous band. Um, but as a producer and the way he manipulates stuff, cause he has people send in stuff and then live he, he's creating these songs and it's just, I mean, what an unbelievable guy this guy is. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good point because I think that that's how it has changed where you have, um, the musicians that are built for that type of exposure yeah. are having, are having their heyday. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not built for that kind of exposure, um, you know, in this podcast, I get to talk to a bunch of musicians because of Pluto radio and my association with, with that. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I, what comes to mind is I was talking to this cat Gozer Goodspeed, and he was saying exactly that. He's like, Hey man, I can do my songs. I can go out. I love doing it. Love playing. He goes, but I don't really want to be involved with people more than that. He goes, I want to retreat. Yeah. And I want to be an artist and create and then bring it back out to the world. Yeah. And he's not slamming anyone who does it different, but, but man, there are some cats that are like you say, hi, I'm here for my podcast and we're going to write a whole new song today. And, and they yeah. do every afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> it's something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I'm like your friend. I, I totally retreat just yeah. in my home studio and, and I fire it up every day, but and writing every day. Um, but it's just, it's me hiding from the world. And part of it is the pandemic as well, but I've always kind of been that way. Yeah. I think, I, I think that the past allowed for us to be that I'm, I'm like half and half, to be honest with you. I, I like to make sure that uh, I like to put out best prepared thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm learning to float more because I ended up in a jazz club and I was singing jazz uh, and it taught me how to kind of relax and just float on the song. So yeah. I try to do that in life now, but it's still a little harder for me just to be like, uh, okay, I'm just going to go out and make it up as I go. And I, I expect people are going to dig that. It's tough for me to do that type mm -hmm. of thinking mm -hmm. where I, I, I'm, I'm kind of like you where I want to retreat and fix it and make it right and then bring it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's the great thing of having a home studio because you're not spending all this money. You go in, I mean, and I've done that. I've been through that phase going into a big studio and spending hundreds of dollars mixing and going home and hating it and going, yeah, well, that's it. You know? Yeah. I've done that. Stuff, I just remix it. I tweak it. You know, I'm not on the clock. I mean, that's, that's pretty revolutionary. It is. And it allows for freedom um, to, and how, like, I don't know, have you changed your approach? on writing music because of that, do you think? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Definitely a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, used to, you know, way back starting out, it was just sitting at the piano or a guitar on my lap. And it still is at times, but um, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll put a drum loop down and write on top of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the technology has changed. The new tools have changed. Yeah, it's, it's true. I think I... Like uh, some of the songs uh, that I've done, I'm certainly not as prolific as you are, but, um, and we're going to put on one of your tunes in just a bit. Oh, um, cool. But some of the songs lately, I just, I, because of the jazz thing, I, I would put like the music concept down and then I would just load up um, on GarageBand mm -hmm. and just, just sing what I feel and let the words come out. 
And a lot of times it's pretty freaking close to done. Yeah. Yeah. And I could, it is where the magic is. Yeah. And I could never have done that years back. Yeah. Yeah. Part of that too, is because I'm not as musically uh, able as someone like yourself. So for me, it's like, I have to really bust out some rudimentary thing and then try to figure it all out. Whereas I think you end up with a lot more groove in your fingertips on your guitar, you know, Mm. And yeah, speaking I, speaking of which, I do want to put one of your songs on so that uh, everyone is uh, sure that you're actually a musician and just not some old Troy buddy of mine. <laughs> Fair enough. So how about, you know, this might seem like a really odd choice, but I love the hell out of this song, uh, Knockout Punch. Oh, wow. Isn't yeah. that yeah, yeah. I love it. And I just want to I want to put that on first. And then uh, a little later in the show, we'll put on fireworks on 14th Street uh, and, and they'll see a nice arc of different ability for you there. And also we'll talk about the Mick Ronson stuff, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Anyway, here we go with Knockout Punch. Speaking of Detroit City, next up, Cody Melville, Knockout Punch.
Yeah, man, I, I just dig that song. In fact, that was one of the songs I think I asked, uh, hey, man, can I redo that song? And uh, you came back with me, I think, with uh, In Memphis. Oh, yeah. I, well, I, I love what you did on that one. Oh, man. Well, I, I think you talked me through as a producer on that to get that breathy kind of Bowie-esque thing, I think, is what you asked for. Right, 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 right. right. And it was yeah, a great that one. Just overall, it's just uh, of all the stuff we've done together, I, I find that one the most. It's got the most legs. It's very cinematic, like you know, find its place in a film or, or something. You know, it's a, it's a. I find it fascinating too because it's. Um, you asked me to sing in a style that was a little uh, something I didn't spend a lot of time with, mm -hmm. and you were like, John, I really think that this is the way you need to do this song, and trust me on this. And it took me a couple stabs, and uh, but I, I agree. I think it surprised me, and when I still hear it, it surprises me. Cinematic's a good word for it because it's a song that just just brings you on a, a journey and makes you feel something. Right? That's what I take from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just so. It's like it's like it's well crafted the way that. Um, like the guitar works laced in there and just the whole build of the song and people that hear it are surprised. They're like, wow, that's a, that's a little bit different for you. It sounds great. And I'm like, yeah, I think you can uh, credit Cody for that one. <laughs> so, well, but for sure. It was, that was a really good outcome. Oh, thanks man. But yeah, I dig that knockout punch and I like that whole, uh, is it Cadillac crown? Is that the name of the album? Yeah, that's a really, really old record, but that's I, that you even know it, you know? I really dig all your work, but for some reason, that one has this really kind of mythical quality to it. It almost feels like you were playing with music um, outside of any kind of idea to make it, you know, popular. You were just playing music the way you wanted. You, you had a vision. All of your music doesn't sound this way, but you had a vision of like a, a place in the woods or something. And it, this is just how music is done back at this other place. I, where did you come up with the idea for that album? Uh, well, I had, I uh, was living on the Upper East Side. Uh -huh. and I, had, um, I had a home studio, but I was still going analog. I had this great half inch eight track Tascam machine. Right. And um, some kind of, uh, you know, a fairly, fairly uh, cheap sounding, which I found charming keyboard. Like that's on knockout punch. Um, it's a really chintzy keyboard, uh, but it had a certain charm to it. And uh, again, that was a period of sort of hiding out. Um, and I don't know. And I was working. I was working uh, at the time for a, a well-known songwriter, a very right. successful songwriter, as his sort of uh, um, fixer slash manager. Um, and. Uh, I was actually a little intimidated by, that's probably the wrong word, but maybe it's not. 
about the idea of writing a hit. I just, it's an interesting point that you made that I wasn't really striving for writing hit singles, which I, I, I do a lot. And I really kind of like that idea. I really love that Joe Jackson song, I'm a hit single. It's yeah. a really cool concept of sitting down and writing a hit single, uh, but not on that record. I was just doing sort of atmospheric stuff, some kind of brokenhearted stuff because a relationship uh, went south. And I think, too, you were using instruments in a way that you don't typically use them. Would that be a, a good characterization? Well, because I was using those chinchy sounding keyboards, yeah, and yeah, which you don't typically use. But it's still guitar and bass. So I think there's a lot of acoustic guitar on that record. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly because it is so long ago. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, like some 300 of songs ago, you know. Yeah, well, you are very prolific. And, and but some of the songs, I won't dwell on it too much then if, if I have you at a disadvantage, but one of the most beautiful aspects of it, I think, is how you would leave open space in your music in that particular album. Hmm. And I just want, that's, I think, in a strange way, why I like uh, Knockout Punch so much is just because it's got this, I don't know, it's like there's room in it and and there's something yeah, compelling very little, about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And a cheesy organ and a, and, a, and a drum machine. Yeah. You know, um, you know um, uh, 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 a white guy's version of Prince. You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what? You know what I should do is just flip the script and and throw on uh, fireworks on Fourteenth Street right now. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a little more contemporary. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, well, cool. Well, here we go with that. Kill soon. I lasted a couple of rounds. Did you? 
Well, see, now that way everyone gets to see uh, some some variance in your work. And mm -hmm. uh, that's a cool song as well. Is that one of your, uh, do you have favorite songs? Um, y yes and no. Uh, I, I'm, uh, which, which drive, my brother Johnny is a dr my drummer with my music partner. I drive him crazy, I think, because uh, uh, we get excited about stuff that we're working on. And then I just, drop it i move on oh man i'm always excited about what i'm working on today yeah. um so <laughs> yeah but i i did fireworks on 14th street that that album is mostly a duets album right that the idea of that record which is just a duets with um um a lot of my friends uh some really cool people andy Chernoff from the dictators um larry Kerwin from black 47 um detroit guy who i was uh when i first started out um, playing in the, the bookies punk scene way back. When. Oh yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I was in a band called the plugs and the, the lead singer of that band, Jeff Shoemaker. Um, one of the tunes that we did was one of the tunes that uh, he and I wrote together when we were 18. So that was fun to revisit that and recut that. That's on that record too. That's cool, man. Yeah. 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 I, I like that record. It was uh, pretty well received and uh, had a lot of fun doing it, you know, doing these duets with uh, all these great people. Oh, that's, I noticed there was, uh, I guess I didn't associate it, but there's a lot of featured in a certain, like if I go online and I don't look at the actual album, yeah, you know, you get songs out of, out of album context per se. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden I hit this swatch where I'm like, damn, I didn't realize he had so many featured people in his music. So that must've been that album because you were yeah, swapping that's out. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. then you play, you play clubs in New York as well, right? I do. I do with, uh, with a, a band, uh, lineup, uh, play the clubs on the Lower East side. And then up here in the country, um, I do solo things, um, you know, two or three sets of, maybe half of my own songs and then just covers that I really love to do that I've always wanted to just play, and, you know, get some drinks and a few dollars. And no, I gotcha. Yeah. And, and you know? pre COVID. So you would play pretty much every weekend. No, but I would play every month. I would, play, you know, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to play every weekend, but yeah, I, we, right. We'd like to do that until we do. And then it's like, damn, I don't want to play every weekend. Yeah, you it, know, those weeks come around. The seven days come around fast. Exactly, but that's cool. So you, uh, so you're out in the out in the country per se, and so you'll go to just smaller taverns and set in and 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 just like. Well, there's a. Uh, I, I live I live in uh, in the Catskills, and I'm oh gotcha. I'm literally uh, uh, footsteps from Yasger's Farm, where the Woodstock Festival took yeah. place, uh, Bethel, New York. So uh, I'm up here in Sullivan County, and my town itself is uh, is uh, not great for like uh, a music scene and clubs. But a, a town that's close by called Calicoon, which is right on the Pennsylvania border, uh -huh. uh, there's a few places that I play over there, and that's a really cool town. So uh, you know, it's it's not unlike my days hanging out on Bleecker Street in the Village, where I'll go there for the night and just uh, walk around from club to club, you know. Uh, all night long, get a drink. Oh, nice! Play and you know, uh, so that's 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 a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. That sounds very cool, man. Let's uh, let's mention though the um, time with Mick Ronson. How did that fit into where you are now and when you left Detroit? I guess when did that happen? Um, that happened. Uh, 
Well, I had, I had left Detroit and then I returned. I had to, uh, that was, that was my starving days. And I was, uh, um, I was living uh, in the West village and working in a bakery and playing, staying up all night long, um, playing as much as I could. And then I just ran out of money and my sister Kathy got married. So I had to get back to Detroit for the wedding. (laughs) Right. And uh, I had enough money to get back there. And then I was like, okay, back here again now, you know? Um, And uh, while I was there, I, I, came upon the idea of reaching out to Mick uh-huh. to produce me. So uh, I've always been um, pretty good at getting on the phone and making things happen. And so what I did is I, I, uh, I reached out to a management company in Toronto that uh, managed a great band called the Paolas that Mick had produced. And I said, uh, and it was a lie. I mean, I was just a kid and I had nothing going on, but I said, uh, I said, I just, I'm signing with RCA Records and I want uh, Mick to produce my record. Do you have a contact number? And it was just like, you know, I don't know if she was a receptionist or someone with a Rolodex and she just gave me his home telephone number. Oh, that's great. New York. So uh, I reached out and he was actually in London producing some band that I don't remember who because it's so long ago now. Yeah. Uh, but his wife, Susie, uh, said, well, here's the address. Because she actually, there was some back and forth and they had spoke. And he said, well, give him this address and tell him to send a tape, which I did. And then I finally got him on the phone because I, he kept, I kept missing him. He was going to the studio at the time between the UK and, you know, New York. Yeah. It's different, obviously. Finally got him and he said, yeah, these are really, you're a good songwriter. I really like these songs. Um, um, let's, let's do something. And uh, he, he said, where are you now? I said, you know, I, I, I'm in Detroit now. And he said, well, let's do it in Detroit. It's going to be a lot cheaper than studios in New York. Oh, so, that's cool. Uh, so he uh, coming back from the UK, landed in Detroit and stayed at the house for three weeks. My parents' house, I didn't have my own place. And he, uh, I was like, uh, I was sleeping on the couch in the family room and he was upstairs in the guest bedroom. The rock stars upstairs, baby, yeah, in the in crazy. the penthouse. That is crazy cool. It was crazy. Like I, I remember one morning, hungover, waking up because we, you know, we work and then we drink all night. Right. And wake up, you know, on the couch, and, and there's uh, Mick and my mother in the kitchen, and my mom's going, "So, Mick, what happened with you and Bowie?" And, <laughs> Please don't ask him that. But I'm like, "Oh, let me hear the answer. How interesting." So, That's fun, man. Yeah, yeah. He became part of the family. It was really pretty great. And what did he tell your mom happened between him and Bowie? Oh, it was like a very political answer. Well, you know, and things change. Yeah. We went our separate ways, you know. (laughs) And and so obviously you had a great relationship with the guy, right? Yeah, yeah. We we remained friends. Um, Yeah. And was that like an EP that you guys produced, or was it an album? What it was was uh, essentially a development deal. Uh, We had, uh, we were doing four songs as demos, uh, hoping to um, get a label right. to give us money to do the rest of the record. We had it all planned out what we were going to do. And we actually had a guy, and I won't say who or what label because he's still around, um, but he was very interested, but then he had gotten fired from this big company he was. And that's how it is in the record business. Yeah. If, 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 if the guy, the A&R guy who digs the band suddenly loses his job, no one else at the company gives a rat's ass and you just you die on the vine. And that's just yeah. how happened. Um, so, but I, you know, I, I, I managed to, uh, then I got back to New York and I managed to get 
um, a pretty cool management company to try and pick up the ball and put you know, all the pieces back together. And um, they, uh, we had a meeting, Mick and myself and them, and it was very funny because it's the same kind of shit because it's all such bullshit. You know, they were, uh, they were saying, well, Mick, will you, could we, will you play some shows and will you do all that? And he was, yes, yes. And so he goes outside, he goes, you know, I don't know if I'm going to play any shows. We just got their managers. Just we say yes. We always say yes. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> the lesson for the music business. Tell them, tell them yes. We'll deal with it later. <laughs> well, because he knows that's like, it's like, um, I think that happened to Clint Eastwood when he came in and he says, yeah, I want to direct this movie. It's called Play Misty for me, and I just I just want to move in and understand how to direct. And he does his whole spiel, and he he said the whole room goes quiet, and he knew what they were waiting for. So finally, he goes, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'm in it too." But he wasn't planning on being in the in the movie. Oh no, kidding! And that's how he knew he had to sell the room because he he thought he sold them by just I'm Clint Eastwood and I want to direct this. Direct thing. It, yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of that. That's what I think mix tuned into is like you know you just tell them what they want to hear and let them do the Absolutely. deal and see where it falls yeah yeah but that had to be cool actually going to freaking music meetings with mick ronson yeah no it was very cool very cool he was he was a super gracious guy hell of a guitar player too hell of a guitar player. yeah hell of did he have all kinds of guitar notes for you when you were working with him no on the uh on the um, the stuff that we recorded, those 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 demo things, um, uh, he played most of the instruments. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I was playing bass, and I'm really not a bass player, but because I, you know, technology was not what it is now, and we we would be, um, you know, before the studio, we had this little four track cassette player doing pre production. Yeah, and um, so. You know, I had a synth and a guitar and a bass and a drum machine, um, and uh, on on those, and we we were, we ended up writing the co-writing stuff, stuff that I it wasn't even that I had originally sent him, um, and so I mostly I played bass and I played keyboards, and then I just did the vocals, and then my brother Johnny, who was just a kid, who's you know again my partner now and drummer, is a phenomenal drummer. Um, he, uh, we ended up doing a lot of Lindrum stuff because it was the 80s, and then he did percussion overdubs. Right. We actually sat down at a kid and did a group, but he did like all this percussion overdub stuff. And, and Mick played the, the guitars and uh, keyboard. And we had a, a cello part. Uh, Johnny was a student at Wayne State, and Mick had this idea for a cello line. Um, and so Johnny knew this girl who was, you know, a music major and played cello. And she came down, and he, he was a, uh, um, he was a real musician, so he sat down and he wrote it out, charted it out, put it in front of her on a music stand, and we just rolled tape, and she just hit it. She read it and played it live, and then doubled it the second time in, in 20 minutes, and she was done and out of there. It was really something. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think I read somewhere he actually started on a violin. Yeah, yeah. He was classically trained, uh, classically trained piano, piano player, uh, string player. Yeah. Real deal. I and then I think Bowie lost his uh, arranger and basically assigned it to Mick, just like he was at a meeting and they go, well, we need an arranger. He goes, oh, no, no, Mick will take care of that. Yeah, so it, sure. it's just an uh, interesting fellow, man. And, and what a kind of rock legend to be with, especially in a strange way. How poetic that you guys did this in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he, well, he expressed how much he, he was pretty crazy about Detroit. Yeah, he and Bowie both just loved the hell out of it for some reason. Yeah. Well, we went out every night 
um, you know, there was, you know, there was a show at St. Andrews Hall. We went down, we went to see the Violent Femmes. Nice. Um, they happened to be in town. During yeah. That. Uh, yeah, it was, we had, it was a great time. Really great time. That's really cool, man. I appreciate you, uh, you sharing that. Oh, so, yeah. so out of the, uh, the songs you worked with Mick, which one would you like me to add into the podcast? Oh, uh, interesting. Um, uh, maybe uh, one more good night because that has the cello part on it that I just mentioned. Fantastic. We'll do that right now. Cool. really cool that you got to work with Mick Ronson and you guys were producing music. I bet you felt like kind of a big dog during those days. Well, it was great for my ego because I mean, he was clearly was and is a, a hero of mine. And for him to say that he thinks I write good songs was kind of huge because first and foremost, uh, 
uh, I feel like I'm a songwriter, you know? Uh, so that was, that was pretty huge. You know, if I never really get any um, enormous success, that in itself was, you know. Yeah. That's a pretty cool rock maybe and roll not. story. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not. Who knows? Well, what is, what is next for you? What do you got? What do you have coming up as far as, I mean, like Corona has obviously crimped everyone's style in a very dramatic way, but are you working on an album? Are yeah. You- well, it's it, it, because I've been hiding even more than I usually do. It's, I've, I've been uh, really prolific. So I have um, um, a record now um, called dogs in this town. Uh-huh. That, um, we're just finishing up now. Uh, it's 13 songs one cover an Ian Hunter song that we cover the rest are all new songs. And, uh, it's myself and Johnny, my brother on drums. And then you more of a, more of a Bowie thing. Um, uh, Mark Platty on bass, who's just, you know, a huge talent. And he was Bowie's band leader and music director for a long time, all through the nineties and co nice. producing Bowie records. And he's playing bass on it. And, uh, so it's, it's really a Mark's hand. It's now we, Johnny and I are pretty much done. Although we may add some little things here and there, you know, once we get down to mixing and listening, listening again, big picture. But so that's cool. That record's done. And then then Johnny and I have another dozen songs that we're just finishing up now for, I don't know, a a second record or maybe a a, a double album. I mean, if we can't get a label to put it out, we can do whatever the hell we want. A label, 26 songs. But if it's just going to be a digital release, maybe we'll do it all at once see if Mark wants to play on the rest of those songs, but a lot of who knows, but um, yeah, been, it's been really, uh, really a, um, a crazy time, but uh, uh, it's, you, you strike me as though um, you just are at a place where you're going, fuck it. I'm just going to cut myself slack and just have fun doing what I do. And then all of a sudden you have a ton of songs because that you've been able to do what you want to do, maybe because the, lack of distraction during covid yeah um which is really cool i mean it it sounds fun man it sounds like you're having a good time doing what you like to do i am it's it's good therapy you know um it's it's really uh, mu- mu- you know making music listening to music is a very healing thing and very therapeutic and and and, and you know and i'm doing both i'm listening to a lot of music yeah too. Do you um, like do you like having to do uh, videos for your songs? I know you don't always do videos for your songs, but I've seen some where you take some time to make sure you're in them. I've seen some where you just cut uh, stock video. Is it is that something you you would you like to spend time on when you can? Uh, it's 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 not something that I feel I have like you know uh, like in your case. I mean your your your, your videos are these great right. movies. Oh. This is what you do. You're, you're Thanks. Yeah. You know, um, so, I, you know, we, we did an actual, you know, some, a video with a budget and a real direction. Yeah, I dug it, actually. For, uh, for um, Local Honey, shot yeah. in, a, in a town up here. Um, a good friend of ours, Roddy Bogawas, who is, uh, um, te- I think he teaches film at the New School. And he's, he's done videos uh, along with his cinematographer for some pretty big bands. Um, and he's just a really brilliant, smart, you know, nice, talented guy. So he came to us and said, and offered to do it, which was really, really terrific. And yeah, I thought, it, I thought it looked great, dude. Yeah, yeah. So it was all in his hands, and I just did what I was told. And, you know, he was a director, and I just walked where I was supposed to walk. But, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't, uh, that hasn't been a big part of the presentation of my music. Right. 
as opposed to, to, to how you present. And uh, I think that's really cool the way you do that. Oh, thank you. The new one is, is uh, the science sci-fi one is uh, yeah. really, really entertaining. Well, that's, that's cool, man. I had a lot of fun doing that. You know, it was funny too, because I had to do um, less because of COVID. It's tough to get people to kind of want to play along um, for, for legitimate reasons. You know, they don't want to be stuck in a room with me. They don't know if I'm, I'm uh, ill and, you know, carrying the virus and all of that, but oh, right. I, I thought you meant because of your personality, but because uh, that's why I wanted to, that's why I wanted to be, you know, let you know what the real deal was. Yeah, I, don't, I don't necessarily scare people, but, but I scare, you know, Hey, do you want to do this little bedroom scene? And you're this alien chick. Yeah. It gets a little funky, but well, I love it, the one you did on the, uh, out on the, in, in Hollywood Boulevard, the, the song. Oh, that, yeah, cool cats to call. So yeah, yeah, I just laugh every time I see that when you, when you're out there with those all those costume characters, you know, really something. That's a great song, dude, and and I thank you for you know producing the hell out of it. And it was so much fun doing that in part because the guy I was shooting with, a friend of mine, offered to help me out because most of that I shot myself other than when you see the camera you know a lot of it uh, like the stuff by the uh, water I actually shot by myself and, and I got that wacky suit on and people yeah. watched me carry my gear out in my little wagon and they're all up there looking like what the fuck's this guy doing and then the mannequin actually got blown over at, at one point so I had to chase it into the water to get get my mannequin back it was just such a strange fun thing to do but the thing i really liked about it was being on the boulevard with this guy who's like yeah it's not a problem i'll go out there with you and shoot it with you i'm like man are you sure i've done a lot of guerrilla theater man this is like a little unnerving yeah. for people yeah yeah He's like, yeah yeah no problem so we get out there and he, and i go he goes what are you gonna do i go we'll go i'm gonna stand at that star you're gonna come out and shoot me because i want people just to walk past me and look at me like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, what's he doing? He's in my way type of thing, right? Because yeah. even though the character's like a star in my head, the point is, is like, I just wanted this feeling of detachment from the people around. And he's like, he's like, wait a minute, can't you do it over there by the wall? And I go, no, dude, we're <laughs> going to go. Yeah, we're going right yeah. out there, splashing right in front of the people. And we're going to do it. And I had the boom box at my feet type of thing. And, and he was just really awkward and uncomfortable with it, which gave me a kick in the pants, basically, you know? It's yeah. Like, yeah. Well, you have, you have that actor's fearlessness, you know? I mean, it's, uh, you're in it playing a role, right? You're in character. Yeah. You just go yeah. out and you, you know, do what you But man, that song just opened that up for me. I, you know, if I had big budget, I, I would do tons more stuff. And of course I would have flown you out to do the uh, guitar player, you know, whatever we figured out type of stuff. Yeah. But it, that that's just a great song, and and uh, again, it allowed me to you, you know room to try vocally something that was really different for me, um, and yeah, what a great great thing to have. Like it's like oh man, maybe I can do another song with Cody, and it's like yeah, John, that'd be cool, and it did it, man. It just um, it was a lot of fun. So I thank you for bringing bringing that up. Yeah, hey, did, well, I, I, did, I like all of your your takes on. Uh... The over you was really cool, and uh, as we said in Memphis, that so we talked about that, uh, very cool. You know, it's interesting. Um, as the gentleman who wrote these songs, I think it's really warm and giving of you to allow someone else um, to do them, and knowing too that, like, it's like, hey, man, I I'm going to do them different, like uh, Detroit Rock and Roll Kid. Oh yeah, uh -huh. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I even asked if I could add, a, you know, change some of the lyrics uh, in part because of the way that I wanted to phrase them and in part. Yeah. yeah. yeah and you were like, cool, John, you, you know, yeah, it, it sounds good to me, you know. That's what collaboration is, you know. I mean, what kind yeah. of maniac would I be to say, well, that, you know, uh, this is it and it's carbon stone and take it or leave it. That would be ridiculous. I and mean, collaboration is, you know, people that, you know, in theory have some talent to get together and make something happen, you know? Well, I love the fact that you gave that kind of room and, and, you know, uh, on the West coast people, artists aren't always as generous about that as perhaps two dudes from Detroit might be, but, uh, right. Uh, right, right. There's that. Sure. So, yeah, I, I greatly appreciate that. And I find it, you know, uh, I found it to be a really easy thing to do with you, to work with you. And, and you ended up producing, basically, I put down the vocal tracks um, yeah. and then you ended up producing the music. And it's it was strange for me. I don't know about for you to actually just do it via the Internet. Had you already produced a bunch of people that way or? No, but that that was probably uh, the beginning of of uh, w what maybe felt like an experiment at the time. But now is the norm, and mostly again because of COVID, which is changing right. way of, of living. But um, the record we're doing now, uh, my brother has uh, Pro Tools in his house, and he's got you know a nice set of mics for his drums, and he's gotten some pretty good uh, skills at at, at, at at mic placement. So I'll start, you know, I'll start off with, you know, guitars and keyboards and vocals and, you know, almost completely done from my side. And I, you know, I send it to Johnny and he, uh, he comes up with a drum part. He cuts the tracks. He sends me the stems back individually, a kick, snare, hi-hat, et cetera. I dump it into the mix. And, and, and now we've, we've sent it on to Mark, who's got this, you know, amazing studio in lower Manhattan to do the bass parts and yeah. then the bass stems and I'll drop them in. And it's uh, just how it's done now, you know? Yeah, it, it took me a little getting used to to do it um, myself. And and you were part of that as well when we started working. It's like, well, this is all new. Let's see how it works. And it is true. I think it's, you know, the word stems. I didn't even know what it was seven years ago, right? Or five right, years right, ago. Right, sure. That's new lexicon. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> you know. The, the music business that we knew when we were 22 on all levels, you know. Yeah. Uh, the language of the, of the art it's it's just gone it's a whole it's a whole new thing um and i don't uh, uh i'm certainly no expert on you know uh the, the current way of doing things and and, and marketing and tiktok and all of that I yeah. just, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit lame with that which is unfortunate because you can't be but uh yeah yeah it's a little overwhelming for uh a lot of us in the sense of like, you know, I can't do 2000 things just to market myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a little fragmented, I think for me, I won't speak for you, but it, 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 I feel the same way. Sometimes I'm like, man, I just wish I had a, a, a little better knack on how to do this and how to or organize it so that it's efficient. Yeah. And, and I really don't even try, which might be a mistake. It might not be a mistake, but, 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 but my approach, I mean, with this record now, cause I'm really excited about this current record dogs in this town. I'd love to be able to get a label to put it out. We, you know, we mostly have been putting stuff out um, on duetto disc, which is our, our own label. Although we've put out a couple of singles with an LA label called big stir records. I don't know if you know those guys. No, uh, really nice people. Um, 
but uh, I, I want to get I want to get a label to try and work this record. And if not, what I do is I, you know, we hire a publicist because you have to at least do that. Uh-huh. And we've managed to get some, you know, nice reviews, American Songwriter, Huffington Post, and things like that. Right. And if, you know, and if if you know from there, if you can, I mean, really the 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 uh, the prize is to get a song in a film or a television show because I mean, you know. FM rock radio, if it even exists anymore, is, is just, you know, you're not going to be able to get near that with an independently released record. So you just want to get in a movie. So maybe people get to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that through the last couple of years that uh, there's a, a buddy of mine, an Irish guy, uh, Mark Earl does a lot of music and he. Oh, I, I heard some of his stuff that you've got. Yeah. Book or something. yeah. I like it. Yeah. He's a, he's a good guy. He's, he's, uh, he, he actually, he's pretty eclectic with what he does. And he feels that probably worked against him in the whole scheme of things. But he was explaining to, he's the first guy who really explained it to me. He used to hang out at this bar that I used to hang out at. And so we do drunken talk forever between, you know, hassling the people around us, but he those are the would, best conversation. Yeah, exactly. But he would, uh, he would, he broke it down. He, I'm like, how did, how have you sustained a career for 20 near 20 years at that time? And he's like, you know, he, he would tour, he would do tours of different, you know, with a band by himself. And he was, he didn't really like touring, um, which is kind of a sidebar, but he said the way he maintained was he hung on to his, the rights to his material. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I don't get it. We're, what's the big deal? And he goes, John, if, if we, if I sell one of those to a film or if I get that in, in, in a TV show, I'm making some money now. Right. That's and absolutely he, and he said the other side of it is he has other people interested in his catalog that he can actually, because he's prolific as well, he can actually say, okay, I'll sell you this this package or I'll sell you that package. And then he can get a lump sum of money for a while. Yeah, well, I mean, I would never do that. Yeah. Sell the rights, but I, and probably not. That's not what he means. But, but like, well, I'm sure they return back to him at some point. But. Right, 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 right. But that, but that's that's that really is where uh, the money is. I mean, that was the, the great sad story about the band. You know, yeah. Robbie, Robbie made all the money, and the rest of those guys were, you know, starving toward the ends of their lives. You know, and, and certainly they contributed so much to the band. You know, um, and you know, Pete makes all the money in the Who because he exactly, songs. yeah. Um, when I, the, the guy I mentioned earlier that who was a, 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 a successful songwriter that I worked for, um, uh, I'm certainly not going to tell you the, the dollar figure, but, um, he, he had a pretty impressive catalog. He's a brilliant songwriter, but his two big ones were, um, wild thing and angel of the morning. Oh yeah. He wrote in the mid sixties, 66 and 67, I think. And he was still making a fortune daily, a yearly on those two songs um, because they're on the radio every day all around the world and yeah. people are cutting them in commercials. There's a, there's a, some insurance commercial now where the guy walks in and he's singing wild thing at the DMV or something. I mean, it's just, it's, it's constant, you know? Yeah. Um, and he was a, he was a smart guy. He hung on to, uh, he hung on to his publishing. He, he, he was tempted that people keep, people came to him trying to, um, you know, just buy it. And, uh, you know, when you needed cash or whatever, no, he hung on to his publishing and yeah. that's what you have to do. I mean, that's just smart business. Yeah. And I guess too, that, uh, you know, if you can, if you can finagle that, that also makes you part of the current culture in the world 
you know, because it's like if you're, if one of your songs was used at, uh, you know, as a theme song for a television show that's really popular, all of a sudden you're associated with all that too, you know, so it's like leveled marketing. Yeah, well, there's that uh, um, uh, band that my, actually my girlfriend turned me on to, um, um, The Shins, and they, oh, yeah. were, they were in that movie uh, about New Jersey. What the hell was it? I don't remember it so long ago. But they, it, was a, it was a pivotal song in the scene. They actually discussed the song as part of the, the, uh, the dialogue they're talking about. Right. It's in the background or what, you know, the kids playing it or something. It's discussing the song. It's put them on the map forever. Yeah, you know, a movie from 20 years ago. They're probably still pay, playing, I don't know, 5,000 seaters or 3,500 seaters when they go out yeah. because of that. I mean, that's extraordinary. You made me laugh because I always think when, uh, you know, someone goes, you know, hey, man, that guy's a one-hit wonder. You know, the, maybe the guy from that did Wild Thing, right? Oh, he's just a one-hit wonder. And I'm I always like, hey, dude, I would love to be a one. I know, like that's a put down. Yeah, that's like down. what's your yeah. one hit, man? I'm the one, yeah. I know that's you know that's funny. It's hysterical, but it's it's you know it's all. I guess it's all part of the changing landscape, and you know having to market yourself. And I usually ask um, my guests that are musicians about that, but we we pretty much covered it from a very organic sense of of just your experience of that. What I assume you're like on all of the you know, Reverb Nation, Spotify, which one do you prefer to utilize as a musician? Well, I, I distribute through uh, DistroKit and DistroKit puts them with all of, all of those. Got you. Um, and then I don't pay that much attention. I mean, I'm not getting huge royalty checks, so I have no yeah. idea. You know, I'm, uh, I, I get my BMI checks um, and uh, I don't even look at where the money comes from because it's, it's certainly no fortune, but it's... Right. You know, it's it's nice when it comes. It's like ah, okay. Um, but yeah, so I don't really, I, I don't focus on. You know, I mean, I I don't think Spotify is um, uh, terribly generous um, in their in their pay structure. Um, yeah. So you're not going to get rich doing it. But it's always nice that if you're getting played somewhere, that's yeah. always great. I mean, I mean, you play me. I thank you so much. How great is that? You know, yeah. getting played is 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 the best. I think it's more fantastic for us to be able to hear you than it is for you to hear you. Oh, well, that's, that's kind of, <laughs> right. It's a fantastic thing that we get to play Cody Melville on Pluto radio. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we do play a lot from that, uh, uh, Cadillac crown album, by the way. That's funny. Well, you got to check out the more recent records. Oh yeah. We do that as well. <laughs> we do that as well. Yeah, it, it's uh, funny, man, when uh, me or the other guy that was doing um, some of the choices in music back in the day, back a couple of years ago when we started using you, was uh, it was like, well, what do we choose from? That's what he's saying. You know, he's like, what do we choose? And I'm like, yeah, I know he's got a ton of stuff. You yeah, know? this one's number 13, I think, or 14. So yeah. Our records. And it's but interesting because it's like, we do like to play on Pluto radio just a range from people. So we will play, you know, some of your more uh, popish um, rock stuff and we'll still put on like knockout punch and just let people hear what they hear, man. Yeah. 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 No, well, that's cool. I, I, I really appreciate that. 
I think it's a little bit from the radio that we were raised in, you know, where they would have free form Detroit free form radio basically yeah. is a lot where the thinking comes from. Yeah. Well, we, we were pretty damn lucky. I mean, radio yeah. when we were kids, um, even top 40 radio before FM radio, you know, ABX and WRIF and CJOM starting, you know, uh, started to become a thing. Uh, CKLW and WCAR yeah. and uh, you know red you know bright red plastic transistor radios next to your bed at night. Great uh, Detroit radio was always great, always great. Yeah, it really was. It was. I think at some point we had four rock stations, and they didn't all. They weren't all programmed by the same programming company. I, I worked in Detroit radio in the mid '80s, and it, all the stations that were rock stations were programmed by the same companies but oh when God. we were younger than that it you know you had abx wrf yeah. www you know where it, yeah. i remember hearing howard stern go on uh w4 sure me too yeah i remember when he threw the switch and they went country i was like all right i already think this guy's the weirdest guy on the planet as far as radio goes and now he's going country what the hell because he was so awkward on the radio back then yeah, oh, he would spin in country. I didn't realize he was still with them when they weren't country. Yeah, yeah, I wow. think he he got to throw the switch. Wow. Um, but I it it's just I remember him going on the air too, just thinking I had to listen because he was so different. And I thought, man, this guy is so awkward, but in a weird way, he's so cool at the same time, right? But that was Detroit Radio, Detroit Radio yeah. with with what was his name, Arthur Penthallow, where they so like, hey, baby, you know, his big rock right, right. voice. And well, I'm, I'm thinking even. Further back, um, like, uh, what was his name? Ronnie Leg on CJOM. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was no, it's how I like first heard the New York Dolls and, 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 and things like that, which you, yeah. you know, he, he played all kinds of great stuff. It was, it was a, it was a really cool thing. And I remember I got some airplay, I think it was WJLB, which was, uh, um, they did contemporary R and B, but for some reason on a on Sunday or Saturday night they they would do local music, and I remember they played the hell out of me. Oh, great! And, but that was like a major market radio station that would oh, do the big that. Station. Still is right. Are they, I think there's maybe there. it's not WJLB LBS. That's what it was. WLBS. LBS. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So they were a much smaller station. Um, I guess my my ego was saying it was JLB. <laughs> Well, but, but was a was a rock and roll station though. That was a um, yeah, Alfred and uh, yeah. That's 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 a station that 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 played that tune we talked about earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. But they they drifted back and forth through different formats for a while, and they were rock for for that period of time. Um, but it was it was just it was a cool radio town. So you had all these, sure. yeah, especially sure. you know. I guess that's why people you know call it. Detroit Rock City because it really was a place. I mean, I think Chicago only had two rock stations to speak of at the same time. Yeah, but I, I love WXRT in Chicago. Yeah. I still love that. I'll, I'll tune in sometimes on, on, on online to hear what they're playing. Yeah. They always play great shit. Well, I guess, too, when you talk about CKLW being an AM station and people, you know, that were back in the day would that was the only thing they had to listen to and they would make rock and roll kings in effect i think they were the ones that brought rush to the marketplace well i i don't know i never heard that story but i, I did hear this story where uh 
Um, Alice Cooper too, right? Absolutely, Alice Cooper. Yeah. Where uh, the program director, Rosalie Trombley, I think was her name. Uh, Alice actually went to her kid's school in a limousine and they sort of kidnapped the kid in the car and played oh, at 18, you know, to tell, uh, tell his mom about this record. And oh, that's fun. Bob, Bob Seeger wrote a song called Rosalie about the program director at CKLW. Yeah. How powerful they were. That was a huge, hugely powerful station. Yeah. What, what was the guy? There was a DJ there too forever. Dick something. That I don't remember. I yeah, did. Yeah. He, he, he had a rock. Out, sh- they put out a record called the, um, what the hell is it? It was just like, all, it was like old school top 40 hits, like leader of the pack and stuff that I love that CKLW put out there. Listen yeah. To um, and it was called, it was the big eight jocks or something. Uh, and I think there was a, the DJ who was featured on that who wrote the liner notes or something, but I don't remember who the hell it was. Did you remember uh, WLLZ? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. that's that's one of the stations I got to work at in Detroit. Oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah. And they were... They were yeah, that was owned by Doubleday Books. Okay. And they came in at the time and they were like, um, we won't play a commercial for the first year that we're broadcasting. And I remember in Detroit, people were so freaked out by that, like in a really good way. They're like, this station's the fucking coolest because they, they haven't played one commercial in four months yet. You know, they've been on four months and, and uh, you know, and then they started slipping them in, but they were charging like four times the amount per minute and all of this. And it was this whole concept thing of like building the station up to sell it. Yeah. Oh, got it. Huh. it was so How long were they on the air? How long did they program rock and roll? They sold the double day. You know, it was the kid. It was Abner Doubleday's nephew or great grandson or something. Huh. Great nephew, I mean. And um, he was like this wonder boy that it was so strange to see. This kid would come in. He was my age at the time, which is just a kid. And it, he would come in and he'd have four yes men around him. And it was his whole plan. And the yeah. company, the company was propping him up. And, and he, you know, was this wonder boy who's like, I'm going to turn this, I'm going to, they bought the station for X, X amount a million and then tripled the amount they sold it for. I think they sold it like in three or four years. Did the format stay rock and roll? Once they yeah, stayed? it stayed WLLZ, I think stayed rock for like 10, 12 years. And, and it, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it got switched to, but the, the point was, is this guy from Doubleday, uh, his whole plan was just to do it and sell it. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really, really interesting that way. Could you play whatever you wanted, or did you? No, know? God, no. It was very much like um, they were they were one of the first stations in Detroit to start having this company out of Atlanta do all their programming. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it it really sucked for me because I was on on I was the board operator for the first two years. And I was expected to answer the phones and they told me, yeah, you just tell anyone that calls, you're going to put on their music, whatever they ask for. Yeah. But they had no intention of playing it. Yeah. And I'd be sitting there looking at the playlist. Yeah. And so I would, I would hope that someone would go, Hey man, you're going to, can you get stairway to heaven on? Cause I knew that was going to be in the playlist. Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd look through it. I go, yeah, I'll get that up like in two hours. You're going to be hanging on that long. Of course you are, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, and I didn't, honestly, I didn't dig it because it was, it was corporate radio. And I, I think yeah, big time. Yeah. Well, personally, that's why I think I bailed out of radio back in the day. Um, because I was just like, you know, I, I don't, I, I thought it was different and I worked with, uh, 
Jerry Lubin. I don't know if you remember this guy. Sure. But he was from he was yeah, from ABX. Yeah. He was the first disc jockey they actually hired there. Yeah. And and he was known for his free form radio stuff. And I just thought, man, they got this guy to go as corporate as possible. You know, because they just paid him. They're like, yeah, Jerry, we want to come in a DJ. We want to use yeah. your branding. Got to so make a living. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, man, he, drove, he showed, showed up in like one of the shittiest cars I'd ever seen because I had to, it was in a bad area, so I had to I had the security button to let him in and everything. And I thought, well, more power to you. He's really he was a really gifted DJ. Oh yeah, those those days, of, you know, of, of Jerry in those days, and Mark Perino of WABX was magic. Yeah. That was great rock and roll radio. Yeah, they were gifted guys. They really were, and and God love what they gave us. Yeah, and it was kind, of, and it, it was, and they. I think they were the the back, the sound backdrop to you know Cream Magazine down the street and what Detroit yeah. was, you know, um, putting out to the rest of the world as far as what rock and roll was in the seventies, which was really, oh, I, for, I forgot all about that. Cream Magazine was right there in Birmingham, right? In Birmingham, yeah, very yeah, cream. I forgot all the time. Woodward Avenue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what a cool ride, man. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great town and a great time for music. Hey, with all that, with all that though, I think we can wrap up because we've been talking for a while. And uh, I would like, though, for you to take the time to tell everyone where they can get a hold of your music, if you would do that. Yeah, and all your all the uh, all the fun online record stores through DistroKid, they're on everything. You know, it's 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 readily available on those things. So, yeah. And it's also all they got to do is put in Cody Melville. Yeah, or the Still Souls. Uh, the good. new record we're probably going to put out under my name again, Cody Melville, because we managed to get um, some nice reviews and, and things on the last record we put out under that name. We put out a record in June under the Still Souls, which I, I'm proud of, but practically nobody heard it. <laughs> so we're gonna, well, but yeah. Still Souls again, no, we might, who knows. But as of this well, moment... Um, yeah. Well, so cool, man. It's, it's, it's been fantastic talking to you and having you on the uh, podcast here. So I thank you very much for doing that. Yeah. Thank, thank you, John, for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, of, of course, man. Hey there, this is John. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival at the CEF.world. I also want to say, hey, thanks, Cody, for being on the show. So as a bonus ending to this episode of the Mobile Radio Carnival, I thought I'd throw on that song Cody and I talked about, uh, the song titled In Memphis. Enjoy. Enjoy.